Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast, where the brightest minds discuss the ideas that matter in politics, society and culture. I'm the editor of Prospect Magazine, Tom Clark, and this week we're going to be talking to the Harvard political theorist Katrina Forrester about liberalism and John Rawls. How did Rawls, a 20th century American thinker, come to dominate Anglo-American modern political thought? And what should we make of his legacy? First, though, I'm delighted to be joined here in the studio by Prospect's own digital journalist, Rebecca Liu. Now, John Rawls, Rebecca, is something I think you've got a personal interest in. Yes, I did study political philosophy as well at university. So when I saw this book coming out, I was quite interested in getting my hands on it and interviewing Katrina, which I did, which was nice. And you're going to have to remind some of our listeners and indeed myself who will have heard the name John Rawls back in university which for some of us is longer ago Rebecca than it is for you who who was he and why does he matter um so he was a 20th century or american philosopher uh who started teaching political philosophy at harvard in the 60s and stayed there for many years um he's most known for his 1971 book theory of justice which mounts a theory of liberalism Okay, and the one thing that might ring a bell for some of our listeners and and, and for old folks like me is this idea of a veil of ignorance. Yeah, so it's the idea of you imagine yourself in a position where you're envisioning the perfect society or the society that you'd like to live in. The veil stipulates that you will have no idea about your own social position in the society. You don't know your class, your race, your gender. Um, and and it asks people to think about what kind of world they would like to live in with that ignorance. So if one was looking at, I don't know, Roman society or medieval society, you might think, oh, it'd be quite fun being a knight or a king or an emperor, but there's actually more peasants and I don't know which one I'm going to be. So maybe that's not the society we want to create. Is that the rough right idea? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And it really much ties to it very much ties to the spirit of egalitarianism running through, I'd say, post-war America at the time. So that was America after Roosevelt, after the war, liberalism was on the march. You can see this veil of ignorance. If you were thinking in that way, I guess maybe you'd think I'd like to live in 1980s Sweden where nobody's too poor. I definitely don't want to live in Donald Trump's America where a lot of people are 
very poor. And yet, there is a feeling, isn't there, that liberalism is on a very difficult wicket at the moment. Is Wall still the answer? So I put this very difficult question to Katrina at the very end as well. I think the grand irony with Rawls um, is that when his book came out in 1971, um, mounting a high defense of liberalism, liberalism itself was seeing its greatest threat through the advent of neoliberalism, which is the doctrine of free markets at the expense of the state. And personally, looking back, I do think if we want to recover rules, we have to realise how far the world has since shifted. Now, some of the people we've had writing for us in Prospect, like Paul Collier, and I think also Jonathan Haight, who's been on the Prospect podcast with us before... They look at John Rawls and this idea of a veil of ignorance, all about arranging society to make sure that the most vulnerable not having too hard a time because it could be you, so to speak. So, But they worry that this gives a rather monochrome morality so that you care an awful lot about caring for poor and vulnerable people, but you don't care about other things like pride and honour that maybe in something like the general election we've just had matter more do you think that's a fair critique do you think that rules isn't as rounded a thinker as he might be um i if i were to critique rules that's probably one of the last (laughs) angles i would go for um i do think there is space for understanding how personality um and feeling inform politics but i i think reading it back there is something quite utopian in his vision that should be recovered Okay. On that note, let's move over to the conversation of two people who really know about John Rawls, which is, uh, again, Rebecca, but also Katrina Forrester. Katrina Forrester, thanks so much for joining us. Um, So I've just finished your book this morning, actually, and it's such a comprehensive, insightful study of post-war political theory in the Anglophone world um, and how a certain form of liberalism slowly kind of took over it. To start off with, I might ask you an impossible question. Uh, What is liberalism? Or to make that slightly more to the point, the particular variant of liberalism you're talking about? Well, thank you. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. Um, What is liberalism? That's a hard question because liberalism is a really capacious ideology and it's meant different things in different places to different people. You can have forms of progressive liberalism, which are very sympathetic to the left, forms of neoliberalism, where what matters is much more of a defense of capital markets than, for instance, the defense of free movement. But In general, liberalism has come to mean a constellation of values, the defense of liberty, equality, human rights, and also private property markets. Um, And above all, a certain view of the place of liberal institutions within society. And so today, when we often hear talk of a crisis of liberalism, what people generally mean is that there is a crisis of liberal values like civility or liberal democratic institutes like the institutions like courts, parliaments, and so on. Now, the kind of liberalism that my book is really concerned with is in some sense not a liberal form of politics, so it, it doesn't situate itself within party politics as we might think liberals are liberal democrats or on the right wing of the Labour Party or we talk about some liberal Tories too but liberal political philosophy as it has come to be 
defined over the last 50 or 60 years. Now, liberal egalitarianism, my book is a history of liberal egalitarianism, which is really quite a demanding form of liberalism, quite a left liberalism um, that came out of the philosophy of John Rawls, who is the most influential American political philosopher of his generation. Um, yeah, and that segues quite nicely um, into my next question, which is what is the liberalism of John Rawls? So you mentioned, you know, it's sort of, from what I got, um, society is a game kind of shaped by consensus, sort of a belief in institutions, but not an overreach of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So John Rawls's Theory of Justice was published in 1971. And when he published it, it was a time of disorder. And many philosophers saw him providing the tools for refounding a new form of liberal consensus and a new liberal vision of order at the time when many philosophies of liberalism, especially post-war liberal views of consensus, had been torn apart by the decade of the 1960s civil rights movement, the new left and so on. Now, Rawls was seen then as having a very demanding form of liberalism that looked to redistribute goods in society, um, not just material goods, income and wealth, but goods of self-respect, and to generate a vision of just society that was far beyond, in certain ways, the post-war American welfare state. But what my book tries to show is that actually where he begins in the post-war United States, post-Second World War United States in the 1940s and early 50s, Rawls was actually quite a different kind of liberal. And so that means that we have to rethink what we mean when we talk about liberal egalitarianism. So Rawls, as you mentioned, I try to argue in my book, began as a kind of minimalist liberal in the 1940s. He was very skeptical of the state. He was quite worried about unions, corporations and coercive power. And he really wanted to find a way of setting up institutions in a society, in American society, but also in all imagined democratic, liberal democratic societies, that would provide the conditions for liberal social life, given what he thought were the possibilities of social consensus that existed within liberal institutions and liberal societies. So that's where he began. He ended up going further away from there. He was very concerned with minimizing inequality, but he ended up really by getting to there by going through an unusual route, which was that he engaged very closely with the revisionist ideas of the British Labour Party. And I say unusual, unusual for an American philosopher, so in the 1950s, the British Labour Party was very, the revisionist wing of the Labour Party was very concerned with ideas of social justice and equality as alternatives to ideas of national and common ownership. And Rawls was very taken with these ideas as a way of seeing what his philosophy could do politically. And so he gets very in, interested in these ideas of equality and through a kind of circuitous route, which my book tracks, he ends up with his mature theory of justice that came to structure philosophy for many generations subsequently. Yeah, there's an interesting bit that you remember um, where you point out earlier roles was sort of very left in the American context, but quite in the centre in, in the British context. Well, yeah. So in the 40s, actually, I think we can sometimes misread roles as being to the left. I think he ends up in a sense as seeming like a left thinker in an American sense as you as you say. He always looked like a kind of centrist leftist 
um, from the point of view of the British perspective. Now, but I do think that one of the things that we see when we return Rawls to his context of post-war liberalism is actually how far we have come from that moment where it, the ideas that Rawls was putting forward then actually were not really to the left um, in certain respects, particularly in his worry about the overreach of the state. In the 1940s, many people were really thought the state was quite legitimate. They were quite happy with the degree of planning and control, political control of the economy. But now the fact that those ideas look to us as if they are on the left shows quite how far to the right politics has traveled in the intervening decades. Yeah, and, and we'll get to the, um, the the fun mess that that is today <laughs> later. Um, but something that did strike me in, in this book is you talk about sort of the Vietnam War, the ideas of internationalism that emerged in the 60s and 70s. And yeah, it was, it was striking um, because I, I didn't study these debates closely and, and it was quite strange to me that there was a time when um, governments were genuinely had a crisis over the fact that they, they did war crimes like to, to me that 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 sparked a crisis of conscience was um yeah just very surprising to my to my uh, cynical eyes um so you do track how sort of Rawlsian liberalism responded to the challenges presented by um vietnam war era activism and then later the ideas of sort of what post-colonial states should be owed yeah thank you uh, that's a really great question so one of the things that my book tries to show is that, well, all the things that we've already been discussing about the minimalist state, whether Rawls was in, influenced by the Labour Party and so on, those ideas sort of get submerged for a while because in the 1960s, suddenly you have this moment of political crisis, first the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War, and then I'll come to the international question in a second. But it's this sense of political crisis that really pulls a lot of philosophers who were working in logic, in moral philosophy, into politics. And there's this kind of irony that happens, which is that at the very moment that philosophers get very involved in politics, what they end up with is this incredibly abstract system that abstracts away from the messy realities of politics. And what happens in the late 1960s is the cir a circle of philosopher that is already forming around rules. He's a very influential teacher. They go on to found various institutions of philosophy, like the philosophy of public affairs. And they are the people who receive Rawls's book. They write about it, they review it, they teach it. And so it means that Rawls's book in the 70s becomes this touchstone for dealing with the crises of the 60s and the 70s, thanks to this circle of philosophers who get very uh, animated by and very upset with the Vietnam War. Now, what then happens in the, in the 1970s is that this theory of justice, Rawls's theory, becomes the way in which philosophers talk about issues of international politics. So they start to develop theories of international and global justice. They apply Rawls's framework, which is a way of applying just principles, principles of justice to judge the justice of actually existing institutions. They apply that to the international realm. And one of the things that first provokes them is the decolonization crises of the 1970s and the efforts by countries in the global south to put forward a new international economic order at the United Nations. Now, it's in response to that 
that many egalitarian philosophers try to develop these new ideas but of global justice and what should be owed by the global north to the global south. But they end up doing it in such a way that takes some of the political bite out of um, the political proposals of the countries of the global south. And this is something that you really see again reflecting um, and repeating this dynamic of getting involved in the Vietnam War and then abstracting from it. They do the same again. And so some of the very radical proposals of the global southern countries in the NIO really get domesticated. And one of those is the idea of reparations. And this is a idea that was very prominent in various black power movements in the late 1960s and then also in anti-colonial movements, that there were reparations owed to African-Americans for slavery. And we see that that is, again, a very live demand on the American left. Um, but we all, uh, you also see demands for reparations owed by for colonialism and that's something that a lot of egalitarian philosophers treat with they're not so sure about that demand partly because they argue that the form of philosophical argument it requires doesn't fit with their system so there's a way in which the logic of Rawlsian philosophy and it's a conceptual logic has dramatic political implications because certain kinds of political arguments like reparations get left outside the Rawlsian paradigm and the liberal paradigm, not notionally because of conceptual reasons, but also because of their political implications and political effects. Yeah, and, and this might require some intense simplification, but can you walk us through one example in which you know, a particular demand for economic freedom would be foreclosed through Rawls's concepts. So liberal egalitarians were really focused on a number of ways of talking about politics. They were institutional in focus, they were concerned with equality, and they were concerned with arguments about present inequality. So currently existing inequalities, what mattered was what people were owed in the light of certain principles of justice, not what they had done in the past in order to secure the distributions of goods in the present. So that is, I'll try and put this another way, it didn't doesn't really matter what you have done in the past, it matters what you have right now. And so they were concerned, and this is very compelling in many respects, they were concerned to say that actually what matters was if you were rich or you were poor, and goods should be redistributed so that they maximize the position of the least well-off member of any society, or if you're a global justice theorist of the globe. So they're concerned with whether you're rich or you're poor now. They're not concerned with how you became rich or poor. So the history of why you came to be rich or poor drops out. What that means is that certain patterns of accumulation, capitalist accumulation, certain histories like the history of empire, the history of forms of capitalism, drop out of the picture. So it doesn't matter if you got these goods that you have in a particular way, if you coerced someone or exploited someone to get them. That's not relevant. What's, what's relevant is the redistribution in present. And so that means that certain arguments about reparations get squeezed out of the picture. And some may say that that is, philosophically speaking, 
a good argument. But what it meant was that liberal philosophers didn't pay much attention to various social movements that demanded these kinds of backward looking reforms. And similarly, it didn't, they didn't pay that much attention to forward looking reforms either. Now, that has left philosophy, and I should say that this is no longer really the case in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of attention paid towards how we can bring questions about colonialism into current political philosophy. But that, that did have big implications for the shape and character of liberalism. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And, and so that relates to a tension you track later, which is what is called the communitarians um, with the liberals um, and the sense of people would come to critique this idea of this liberalism foreclosing the idea of group demands, um, foreclosing the possibility that certain groups could be based around shared identities. So one of the things I try and show later in the book, you're right, is the ways in which one of the main alternatives to Rawlsian liberalism by the 1980s was this communitarian response. So liberals had, on the communitarians' view, defended these atomistic social selves, they were individualists, they were only concerned with the place of individual human rights, for example. Even if they were egalitarianism, it was always individual. Communitarians wanted to put community back in. They wanted to put these deeper shared identities back into the picture. And they also wanted to look at the social self rather than the atomistic self. Now, one of the things I tried to show in the book is that actually the communitarians were quite they, they got their target wrong. So they thought, and this, these are famous philosophers like Charles Taylor, Alistair McIntyre, Michael Walzer, they accused Rawls of a kind of individualism which Rawls didn't share. So this, these kind of charges were perhaps better directed of a libertarian philosopher, Robert Nozick, who was Rawls's colleague. Now, Rawls himself had started off as quite taken with ideas of community and various forms of communitarianism in the 1950s. So really, the communitarians actually picked up on ideas that Rawls had left out and left behind. So there's an irony to their vision there. But 
in terms of your question about the place of gender and race and social movements, because communitarians like liberals were in some sense so concerned with individuals and institutions and at least they were concerned to argue over individuals and institutions and what those individuals and institutions were like and they were particularly concerned with juridical and legislative institutions that is parliaments and courts there were a number of different aspects of social and political life that dropped out of political philosophy and one of those was social movements and so there really isn't much discussion within the broad brush mainstream of liberal egalitarianism of social movements and this continued late into the 90s really and one of the other elements um, of modern social life that they don't really talk about is actually the nature of the state either because they're very interested in particular liberal institutions but they're not that interested in the way the state functions so they therefore miss questions about the privatization of the state and these kinds of processes that you see happening thanks to the new right in the 80s and 90s and actually liberal egalitarians and communitarians neither have they don't neither of them have much to say about these kinds of political changes they witness yeah and and, and speaking of which i suppose the 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 other group that's looming large over all of this is the neoliberals. And and there's something quite uh, tra- tragic, I'm showing my cards now, um, in how while all these debates are rolling on, basically the neoliberal transformation of society just became so powerful. I, I guess, how so how did that how did that happen? Well, I don't want to say that liberal egalitarians are complicit in the rise of neoliberalism. That would overstate what political philosophy can do in the world and what political philosophy certainly has done in this iteration in in the shadow of rules. But one thing we can say is that liberal egalitarianism did end up being quite comfortable alongside the rise of neoliberalism. Since the rise of neoliberalism, it very much has been the case that although liberal philosophers have been vexed by the massive increases in inequality, the ways in which they have talked about inequality has been really in terms of making recommendations that could be taken up by in, in policy, but not they haven't said that much about the kinds of politics and the kinds of constituencies that would need to be built in order to overthrow some of the neoliberal policies that we have seen inactive over the past few decades. And so in that sense, liberal philosophy can look quite quietist. It has really taken up its position within various elite institutions and has, you know, some would say it's been moving deck chairs on the Titanic. But I wouldn't go quite that far, my own assessment. I think that there are a number of political philosophers who have been very concerned with the rise of forms of inequality and neoliberalism. But there is something about the logic of Rawlsian philosophy that has meant that they have focused on recommendations for limiting inequality and for how we can agree on certain forms of of reform, but they haven't thought as much as they could about the ways in which those kinds of reforms might be instantiated. Yeah, I think today you see some of the labor power which has been diminished in the past few decades and I suppose you could say Rawlsian liberalism didn't leave that much room for that. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And it's no surprise in a sense that a philosophy that began back in the 1940s as worried about the power of unions and corporations didn't focus very much on unions, the place of unions in liberal democracies. And thus, when you see the hollowing out of the unions in the 1980s, there's not much attention by philosophers given to that and what that might mean for defending exactly the kind of social democracy they wanted. Mm. Yeah. And um, so now looking looking to today, um, I, I find it very fascinating because I went to university, Obama was president, sort of being a liberal was a, a very cool thing. And, and now there is a sort of circle where it's become a slur of your centrist technocrat who doesn't want to look at how kind of, kind of capital and power actually functions. Um, I, I mean, is this a fair assessment? Like what what is the sort of relevancy of liberalism now? Well, I think that on the one hand, it is a fair assessment. I think that liberal political philosophy, like various forms of politics we can now call centrism, it really did miss out on various forms of analyses that we need today, an analysis of class, of power, of where capital comes from, how it moves, where it goes. Um, There are a number of aspects of thinking about gender oppression and racial oppression that Rawlsian liberals though they could have something to say, have not had as much to say as they might have. Um, And I think there is certainly a way in which we might want to call it quits on the liberal philosophical project. On the other hand, Rawlsianism is this incredible resource when it comes to thinking about equality and justice. And so I wouldn't want to throw out the Rawlsian project. I also think that in the last 10 years, especially since 2007 to 8, a number of philosophers have been doing really amazing work expanding the Rawlsian tradition to think about precisely the kinds of questions that Rawlsians left out when they first began the project. So questions about structural colonialism, questions about the privatization of the state. They've tried to apply Rawls's theory to think about unions, worker power, um, finance. There are all sorts of ways in which Rawlsianism can be extended. Now, the question I think is, is it enough? Is it enough to keep adapting within the egalitarian tradition? Or do we need new ways of looking at politics today? And I, I'm i inclined to say that Rawlsianism should remain part of our usable past, but it shouldn't define the terms of our present. And we should be looking for other ways of thinking. Mm. Um, and final question. So, of course, we've got your book, which is, um, yeah, I would recommend. Thank highly. you. Um, but, yeah, you mentioned so these other philosophers taking in roles, but in new contexts. Um, just for any readers that might be interested, um, who else should they be looking to? So I think some of the philosophers taking roles in the most interesting directions are Martin O'Neill, um, Lucas Stanjic, Chiara Cordelli. These are all thinkers who are really pushing rules and I will put cards on the table here in socialist directions. And I think that they're doing fascinating work in the philosophical tradition. I think outside of the Rawlsian tradition, Amir Srinivasan is doing really fantastic, fascinating work. Um, But I also think that we should not just be looking to philosophers. And I think one of the things that my book ends with is in some sense a call to interdisciplinarity and cross-pollination. So not only 
can philosophers learn from historians and sociologists and I think historians and sociologists and so on should be learning from philosophers but I think that we should today be expanding what we might mean by philosophy and looking to a broader tradition of social and political theory and so in some sense I think one of the most interesting and certainly the tradition that I've learned the most from is the feminist tradition and many Feminist theorists do not necessarily self-describe as philosophers, but I think that that's where we should really be looking for a lot of the uh, insights into some of our contemporary questions, for instance, thinking about work as well as different forms of disadvantage. Thank you, Katrina Forrester. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. That is all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with Katrina Forrester. You can read more about the crisis of liberalism in this month's issue of Prospect, which is on newsstands now. And that also wraps up our last Prospect podcast for this year. Thank you all for listening to our conversations with philosophers, economists, authors and more. And we'll be back in 2020 to do the same, bringing a new series of established and fresh voices to explore the biggest ideas in politics, society and culture. Rebecca Liu is our producer. And finally, if you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating or review, which does help. (laughs) We'll see you in 2020. Goodbye.